All right. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Stories of Selling Human podcast. I'm your host, Alex Smith, and I started this podcast because I believe everyone in the world will someday be faced with a situation, could be business, could be personal, that requires you to create change. I think we all want to be heard, seen, and understood, but the people who get our attention and convince, persuade, or influence us are not just salespeople. There are great humans throughout all walks of life that we're drawn to. I'm going to share their stories here so we can tap into what makes us human, practice our human skills, and ultimately, we'll all become better at selling by being human. All right, this is a person that I, I, I just met really minutes ago, and I'm super drawn to, and I'm going to hear, you know, just, I, I, I was joking with this guy that we could have pressed record and you know, had a great podcast with just the last 10 minutes, but we'll we'll repeat some stuff for all of you listeners. Uh, this is a guy who is an author. He's a conference speaker. He's a leader of a mastermind group. This guy is an author of a book called The Wealth of Connection, books on freelance to freedom and, and, and you know, just really like learning success, working as an entrepreneur, but then also connecting with others. This guy's journey uh, takes him through you know, being uh, one of the greatest uh, sports photographers in the country, working through the newspaper industry. We'll talk about that industry, even working for the WWF and the WWE in the heyday in the late 90s. So we'll, he's got to have some stories uh, working uh, as a photographer, photographing WrestleMania. Please welcome none other than Vincent Fujirisi to the podcast. Welcome, Vincent. It's my pleasure to be here. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I was saying that, like, you know, we could have just recorded this thing because, you know, you just right away have some, these such great stories. We 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 you uh, authored a book called The Wealth of Connection, and I think you made it right away when you were just kind of giving your background quickly and your stories, and um, you know, just kind of what your dad taught you. So, um, you know, I think you do like certainly like. We've had other photographers on, so we're, we're going to get into that. Like, I love to hear kind of your stories there, but now you're, you know, really, um, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur, you, uh, you, you, you know, write books and you're, you're speaking. Um, but, you know, something really like struck me just in the first, you know, few minutes and that you just had this like way about you that you can connect quickly to people. And uh, maybe you did, you know, maybe you learned that through your photography career and maybe you learned that. Um, you know, afterwards in your um, entrepreneurial career. But I'm curious, like, um, you you told a great story uh, uh, that your dad taught you kind of, uh, you know, go, transitioning from like the newspaper business to, yep. uh, to like starting your own business. And so I always ask people this question at the top, because I think you can connect it is, you know, when you think of the term, you know, sell, when I say selling by being human, how we can all sell by being human. What stories do that uh, bring up for you? What does that make you think about? And maybe, you know, specifically kind of, kind of going from the, an industry like the newspaper industry to starting your own business and what you're doing today. Yeah, it's a great question because I think it needs to be asked more often because I think we hear selling and I'm adverse to it. I think I'm not the best sales person in the world because I hate being sold to. and for certain reasons. And so you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that girl. Like, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that just person that's out there. Let me just sell you on something that I need you to buy, but it's not really a help to you. 
And I think we're, we're kind of, we're kind of, um, it's everywhere in this industry right now in all these different industries. It's like, Oh, you know, let, here, every book is about how to sell, how to sell more, how to convince, how to persuade. But the whole, but that's not human in my perspective. It's how is it a win-win situation? I talk about in my book about having generous goals over selfish goals. And I think a lot, if we can focus on our generous goals, meaning how's it, how's it good for everybody? How is this, how can I be on your podcast and not only, do really well for you and for your audience, but as well as if people like what we do, then maybe they'll be interested. It's it's a win-win as opposed to let's try to fool somebody into getting something or let's meet a quota or you've got to buy this thing by 11.59, otherwise it's the cart's closing. Even though we know you've got a funnel set up where it's always open on the back end, like that type of stuff, people catch on to that stuff. And I kind of want to be the opposite in that world. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I can see it from you. Um, you know, when when we were just talking, you were, you, like you said, you didn't come from this background. I, I, I like it of of sales necessarily, but you were working in an industry that I've worked in, the newspaper industry, and you were talking about like how newspaper people are some of the most loyal employees you will ever meet. And I agree. Like, if you've ever met anybody out there that's worked at a newspaper, yep. you know, they they like bleed uh, ink. You know, they uh, like, you know, in the heyday of newspapers, when they there was no Internet or even, you know, in the early days of the Internet, I mean, there was really like only a few places to really advertise. And so like these these places were some of the best jobs to have in town. Mm -hmm. uh, they're people like some of the smartest people, some of the nicest people, uh, people like they they feel connected to the community. And um, some of the people that I've met working in a newspaper they're just, you know, just salt of the earth people. They're just great individuals. Yeah. Um, and you worked in the photography department and, and a number uh, different newspapers and, you know, across the country. So tell me a little bit about your, your background coming up, you know, like uh, in your professional career, kind of where you started learning different things from different people. Cause like, I'm willing to bet we talked about one employee, like that was really like a lifer and always there. But like what you learned, you know, working at a place like a newspaper about how to really treat others and, um, you know, how to get people to really buy into you. Because I, I, I just imagine there is a bunch of people that you've met, like other photographers and other writers that people were just like drawn to there and uh, wanted to, you know, really listen to. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I started in New York. You know, I started in the newspaper world in New York. I worked for the Associated Press and for Newsday. And the lessons I learned there, there were great people, but I didn't always learn the best life lessons in terms of selling and selling humanly because we never looked at ourselves as salespeople, right? We're journalists, we're storytellers. And I think the world of journalism has got a bad rap in the last 10 years. And I think in a lot of ways, rightfully so. But local news, it's, it's a different world than national news. I think when people hear media, they think national, international. What we're talking about is local. And your local people don't have the influence that the national does. And they are much more salt of the earth type people. But when I was in New York, it was a doggy dog world. It, was, it wasn't very collaborative. It wasn't very helpful when you're on assignment because if you step in front of me, you now ruin my shot. And I don't, and I look bad to the, to my editors because I'm competing against a lot of other people. So there was this doggy dog mentality of like, I'm going to beat you as opposed to I'm going to collaborate with you. And I think that was the main difference that I got. And we'll get back to it, but leaving newspapers and going to the entrepreneurial world, 
the entrepreneurs that are collaborative do better. They expand their network. They, they help people out. They grow with it. In that world, there wasn't a whole lot of that because everybody's worried about their job. Everybody's worried about getting beaten and they don't want to look bad so that, and they want to keep their job. So I didn't, you know, looking back, there were definitely writers and photographers that I learned from, but it really felt different, like disconnected. Like I don't, nobody talked about sales. Nobody talked about like the sales department did, but in the journalism world, it was really about telling a story. So I think I was completely muted in that world. I didn't. So going into business on my own was frightening. I think it's why a lot of employees are frightened to go into business on their own because they've known their department, but they don't know all the departments. And when you go into business on your yeah. own, you know, you have to know all the departments, at least to start. And yeah. so I don't yeah. look back and say, like, I, I have to really think like, what did I learn sales wise? Cause I don't, I learned how to tell stories. And I think there were sales there in terms of my wife is amazing at this in terms of having conversations with people. Maybe these were the seeds, even in the book of the ones that got the better stories were able to connect with the people better. We're able to connect with the woman on the front porch, you know, after the house fire to get a conversation as opposed to the, the pushy reporter that shoves a, a microphone in their face. Like yeah. you, you learn, I think that's the main thing. You learn how to have a human conversation to treat people with respect, to not see them as subjects, but as people. And then with that, not only do you get great conversations, but you get a reputation as somebody who's trustworthy and then people let you into their house easier. Yeah. So that was definitely a big part of it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, you know, like, um, like when did you realize, did you ever realize like, um, I'm sure, like, like you said, it was really scary. You probably, as a photographer, didn't really consider yourself in sales, maybe, no. um, at all. Um, no. But at some point, a switch flipped as an entrepreneur. Tell, tell me, like, a story. You, you said, like, just how you had to have a tough conversation um, from moving from where you were in newspapers to, you know, starting your own business because that's scary for a lot of people. Um, a lot of photographers couldn't make that leap. A lot of friends that you've had, you know, are probably excellent photographers, you, you included, you were like, I can't, you know, maybe do this on my own. Um, and you were limiting yourself in a way. So talk a little bit about how your dad helped you move into what you're doing today. And maybe when you, uh, like a switch might've flipped to yeah. say, Hey, maybe we are selling, like, obviously as an entrepreneur, you sell every single That's day. But when you maybe came to that realization that, you know, this is something I can do well. Yeah. Well, to, to begin with what I learned later on from this conversation and going forward was artists are great at their art, but they're usually terrible at business. That's why you'll find some of the best photographers stuck in the same job or same spot making very little money, but they're good photographers. I mean, amazing photographers. Yeah. And you'll find photographers that are okay. The ones that the great photographers go, What? They're doing well, but they learned business. And so they, and I think you should do both. I think you should try to be a great, you know, artist in your craft and great at business. So what happened for me was it was not what I expected. I was full in. I was that newspaper person that you were talking about. It was my life. It was my wife's life. I could see doing it forever. I got amazing assignments. You got to meet the people in the community that most people don't get to meet in their office. I got to meet everybody. When the president came down came to town, I was assigned to that, right? I got to spend the day with the Dalai Lama in New York City. My assignment that day was, hey, you're going to hang out with the Dalai Lama for a day. That's my assignment, right? So all, all these great things, a lot of 
it wasn't all great, but a lot of great stuff. Um, but what happened was I gave it everything I had. I would put 10, 15 hours a week extra into the assignments, didn't get paid because we were, you know, we had our hourly rate. But if we're going to work on a story, that was on us if, we're, if we really want to make it better. Well, turned out that my wife and I, we get married. We want to have a family. Elizabeth gets pregnant. We are a month away from having a baby, um, our first baby. And a couple of months before that, I won the biggest award I could win in my industry. International, international sports photographer of the year. Like me and little old Evansville, Indiana was first. The guy from LA Times was second. The guy from Sydney, Australia was third. And I'm like, how did I win this? So they, I get flown to Geographic in DC for the award ceremony, the whole big deal. I'm like, okay, well, we're having a baby and I win the biggest award. This is where I get my raise because I'm making you know, $32,000 a year um, in my job. This is where I'm going to get my raise. And I go into the office and my boss tells me, you know, praises all of my accomplishments, tells me about this, tells me about everything I've done, reads it all off. And then he rubs his eyes, he takes his glasses off and he says, uh, but we can only give you 3%. And I was like, and I got mad. I, I said to him, I said, you know, 3% of your salary might be something, but 3% of nothing's nothing. I, I remember saying that to him, <laughs> not even caring if I got fired. And I, he couldn't do anything about it. I got up to leave and I said to myself, it's over. I said, it's over. And I wasn't planning on this, but I looked out in the newsroom and I saw people that have been working there 20, 30 years and they complained all the time, but I never really heard it until now. They complained about money. They complained about time. They complained about their schedule. I'm like, this is never going to end no matter how much I enjoy this. And I want to have a family. I'm never going to be with them the way that I want. So I went home instead of going to, to look for a feature assignment. And I called my dad and I asked him to do, if I could do work for him. He's got his own business. And he said, no. So I'm like, even my dad's turning me down. It's like the worst day <laughs> ever, right? My boss and my dad. And he said something to me that changed my life. He said, I've been trying to tell you something. You haven't listened. It's like, maybe you'll listen now. And I was like, okay, I'm listening. And he said, you have a skill, but you're not using it correctly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you are settling. He goes, you didn't used to be very good. He goes, you've gotten very good, but you're settling for $32,000 a year in benefits because you could go shoot sports for a magazine. You can go shoot weddings. You can do commercial work, corporate, anything you want, you can do, you can control your time and you have no limit on your income, but you're settling. And that just completely hit me. I was like, oh my goodness. So Without telling my wife, I started calling a couple of different photographers to see if I can assist with them, start my own business. And they all turned me down. I took the phone book, remember a phone book, and I threw it against the wall. And I said, because that's where I was calling from. I said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. I said, no, well, if we can't join them, we're going to beat them. And I called my eight-month pregnant wife and told her we're starting a business, which is not what you want to call your eight-month wife, eight-month pregnant wife and tell her she's about to have a baby. And... um. And she's like, what? We're starting. And I said, trust me, we got this. We'll figure it out. And we spent a year building a business and figuring that out. It was very difficult. But second year, we had built a six-figure wedding photography business, then corporate, built on from there. Two years later, I quit my job. She left when we started the business and went on to that life of freedom that I wrote about in the first book. So that's that's a little story about that. It's an amazing story. I just love it. Like, you know, um, 
it's 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 kind of like you you didn't have that faith in you but your dad did as an entrepreneur i'm i'm just curious like when you got into actually doing it doing the the work where do you think like what do you think was the skill that you think that the photography your your photography peers lacked um in business you know to to be able to get people to actually buy you know, into your, your, your things. Cause you, you're, you're both taking great photos, but yep. someone has to pay you money for them. So, you know, what, what are skills that you think um, served you well when you actually had to like actually get someone to sign on the dial yeah. to do business? I think, with you? I think it's a couple of things. It's relational. It's how you relate with people on a face-to-face level. It's understanding clients needs, which is a problem because Unless you're in that side of the business, nothing you do in your job relates to that. We didn't have to satisfy any client's needs. We needed to make a great picture. I needed to satisfy my boss's needs. So it's a big, it's a big leap to go from having to satisfy your boss's needs to your client's needs, right? I would be in, you know, I'd be in a situation where I didn't really care how I came across to the general public. I needed to get a picture. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. So mm-hmm. the way you treat the general public, right, as bad as that sounds, when you're on assignment in a crowd is way different than you're going to treat them on mm-hmm. the dance floor of a wedding. Because if I knock over grandma, because I got to get a picture of the bride, even though I got a great picture, that's not going to sit well with the family or my clients if I knock grandma over. So mm-hmm. that transition of going from working hard, understanding the business, understanding how to make pictures, but doing it in a way where you make your clients happy and smile and say, like, we are so thrilled that we hired you. That's a huge part of it. And then even understand the money side of it, because day to day as an employee, I didn't need to negotiate anything. I didn't need to negotiate. I got, I had a salary and then I did my work. I need to put prices out for my work as an entrepreneur. I need to know how to price different things. I know how to need to know how to have conversations about this, how to add different packages or add different options. I need to know what, what the price levels are. There's so many different things in the entrepreneur world that we didn't know in the employee world. That's why that first year was such a challenge. That's why I think everybody should be running some type of a business in any way, just to get over that hurdle. Even if it's making you a couple hundred dollars a month, that is the biggest challenge that that so many employees have to deal with when going to the entrepreneurial world in terms of how do I start doing these things? And it's almost like a different world. Yeah, we're photographers, but that's the only thing we have in common. So I slow, quickly did not relate to my former coworkers because a year later, the things that I thought about were not the things that they were thinking about. Photography literally became 10% of what we did as a, as a business owner. In the, in the newspaper world, it was 90%. That's a huge difference. All right. So I feel like with what you just said about, you know, starting the business, a lot of people didn't realize, uh, yeah, like, you know, really how you start focusing on the person, like the audience, like, you know, you're selling, uh, like you're, you're, you're going from looking at, uh, like really just making good photos and really pleasing your editor versus like, you know, pleasing clients and really getting to know clients, um, at a, at a deep level. So, transitioning to kind of what you do because you wrote a couple books you wrote like and really interesting stuff so talk to me a little bit about 
you know, the motivations to write like your first book and then now into like what wealth of connection is about? Because I think that could really tie all this stuff in. And you said like, it really is like the the one you're most like proud of um, because you were kind of teaching people your story of like creating a you know career as an entrepreneur really with the first one and the second mm -hmm. one really, you know, how to connect to others. Um, so yeah, kind of, you know, tell me what motivated you to write those and, and what people can uh, take away, you think. Um, yeah, the, the first one was, they're both hard and every book is hard in its own way. First one's like, do I, am I really an author? Can I really write a book? Like that's the first one. And you, you question yourself and you constantly go through that. So, but the, the, the interesting thing was that was really fun was telling the story and telling a bunch of these stories over and over again, whether you're speaking or in conversation. And then finally a friend of mine, David Burke said to me, he goes, you know what? I know it sounds fun to write a book and it sounds interesting. He goes, but I think it's deeper than that. Cause I think you have an obligation to write this book. I think people need to hear this story and it's no longer like a, Oh, an interest or a hobby or a passion. It's like, it's an obligation to get. And that hit me. That, that I really listened to that. I was like, wow, you know, because it's like, okay, if that's true and this actually can change people's lives and I need to get it out there, then you got to put the effort into write the book. So it's very challenging to go through that and a lot of mental hoops. Whenever I write stories like that, that are very personal, the first half of the story is, is how we got into trouble and then got out of debt and built this career. And the second half is how you can do it. Um, but that was a very emotional thing to write you know, 30,000 words on that part to really like the struggles, the going into debt, the having a kid, our first kid, and then the, the, the doubts and the struggles of doing it, all the mistakes that we made. Like I wrote about it. Like I, I was open about it all. And so that was the, that was the first part. The second book, you know, I joke, like, it's like, I don't want to compare myself, but like when, when my wife was having kids, it was like, never again, you have a baby and you have all this pain and Never again, ne not doing that again. And then two years later, you know, you hold somebody else's little baby and you go, well, maybe I want to, maybe I want another baby. And, and that's, then you wind up wanting to have another baby. It was the same thing. I'm never not writing another book, not interested in it. And then about two years later, it's like, yeah, I think I have another book that I want to write. I, and do I really want to go through all the pain of it? Do I really want to go through all the edits and the struggles and the late nights and the early mornings of writing and, and eventually you write enough for you. Yeah, I, I want that pain. I really do. And, and so this whole idea of the wealth of connection was, I think we've lost so much of this. And I think it was so funny how I was writing it during, during all the COVID craziness and how coming out of it, how I think it's needed even more than ever. It's needed more than I even realized when I was writing it because we've lost so much of that connection skill, the ability to look people in the eye, the ability to have conversations, ask questions about others, figure out what other people's goals are, then going out of your way to make that happen for other people instead of all the selfish goals that we have and all the stories we want to talk about us, us, us. But it's really about conversations about the other person, about being interested, not interesting. And I think we've lost so much that in this era of, hey, listen to my podcast, you know, read my blog. Everybody want, Everybody's striving so much for attention that very few people realize how self-involved it's become. And but connectors, the people that you really attach to are not the ones that are self-involved. They're the ones that are generous and giving. So why do certain people succeed over and over again and a, just a large majority of people constantly struggle? And that's what this is about. So that, that's the reason why I wrote this. Yeah. You know, I thought, I think, you know, in uh, a description of it, I, I love that. Like in order to create something people want to buy, you, you must become the person that people want to know. 
you know, and, and within that, like, you know, the per the the becoming the per person that someone wants to know, um, you know, I think is so key. Like, you know, like I think everyone out there has people that you like Vincent and me, like I can just think of people that I, I just want to know more about mm. them. Like I'm I'm drawn to them. Like yep. and 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 what are their characteristics? Like, are they people that are, you know, really putting up a platform uh, about themselves? Is it somebody that is, you know, like concerned about like, you know, their, their own wealth or their own, like, you know, kind of in, in you know, in external, you know, kind of motivators and things like mm -hmm. that. It's, it's, it's really people that, like you said, like, that genuinely feel like, okay, like, no matter who you are, no matter what, like we're all the same in a lot of ways. I might be at a different point in my journey, but I, I, I genuinely like want to, you know, know about everyone, you know, yeah. um, and spend time with everyone. And so like, yeah, becoming the person that people want to know, um, like, like talk, to, like, it seems like you learned that a lot at a young age. It seems like your dad was someone that way, like as an entrepreneur, maybe your mom too, uh, as well, just in a different way. But like, as an entrepreneur, like he had a tough story, but it, like for him to like, give you that advice, like how, how did you like, you know, really like learn that? Where, who were the people in your life that you think you learned that connection skill from, you know, or did you have it early on? I, it was a slow process of learning when I didn't realize I was learning. Yeah. Um, oh. When I was 15 years old, I was a huge New York Mets fan. I tell the story of the book and it's probably one of the one that resonates the most. And they won the world series the year before that they beat the Boston Red Sox. And I wanted to go to the parade so badly, but I wasn't allowed to go. None of my friends cared. I couldn't go. My mom's not letting me go into New York city at 14 years old by myself, even though I wanted to go. So the next year's opening day, and it's the last remnants of that team. They're getting the World Series rings. They're raising the banner. And I got to go. So I bug my parents. They finally allow me to go if my friend goes with me. So they go to work that day. I go to get my friend Scott. And he tells me then that his mother said that he's not allowed to go. She changed her mind. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, what do I do? So I decided to go to the game by myself. And like, I'll ask forgiveness later. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll but I got to go. Otherwise I'm going to school or I'm sitting home watching television. So I get in the bus to go to the game and I know the route. There's two buses I need to take. And then I got to get to the seven train to get to, yeah. to get to Shea stadium. I know the whole thing. And I've got my, you know, 30 something dollars in my pocket for a game ticket and for train fare, you know, bus fare. And so on the first bus I get there, I get off in Queens and I go to a second bus and um, there's just me and the bus driver and this big like Italian guy just scary looking and i'm like oh okay so i go to the back of the bus because he's got a cigar in his mouth he's talking really loud and within like two minutes on the bus he turns to me and he goes hey kid shouldn't you be in school like yells at me because it's a tuesday afternoon i should be in school and i'm like yeah i'm going to the i'm all meek i'm like i'm going to the mets game and he just gets digs in even more turns towards me he goes by yourself you going to the game you even have a ticket and i'm like no, yeah, I'm going by myself. I'm getting nervous. I'm like, yeah, I'm going by myself. I'm, no, I don't have a ticket. I'm going to get a ticket when I get there. He laughs at me. He goes, he goes, kid, this game's been sold out for months. It's the hottest ticket in town. He looks at the bus driver like, you believe this kid? And he goes, how much money you got? And now I'm getting a little nervous. I'm like, he's asking me how much money I have. And I'm like, um, I got 
And he laughs at me. He just waves me away. Like you, like, like there's no way I'm getting a ticket. Just let like, forget. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, all right, I just want to get off this bus. So we finally get to the stop Jamaica where I'm going to get on the, I'm going to get on the train and I go to get off the train. And he, he looks at me, he goes, Hey kid, he stops me before we get up, I walk down the stairs. He goes, come here. He goes, turn around. So I turn towards him and he gets serious. He goes, okay, listen to me. He goes, when you get to Shea, you go to gate B, you ask for Vito Lateruli. You tell him that Funzie from the waterfront sent you. That's what he says. To me. And I, he goes, you got it? I go, I got it. Oh my so God, goes, I'm getting chills. So he goes, go. Now go. So I get off the bus and I, and, and I get on the train. And I'm like, there's no way I'm doing this. But I kept saying it over and over. I'm like, gate B, Vito, Funzie, over and over again. It's the only thing I felt. Because <laughs> I don't want to forget it. So I get to Shea Stadium and the place is packed. There's nobody selling tickets. Everybody's looking for tickets. You can't even move. I'm like, even if there was a ticket, I'm not getting it for $30. And I'm like, I can either get back on the bus and the train and go home, or I can go to gate B and see what this is. So I go to gate B and I and I go to the old guy at the gate and I say, um, is uh, Vito Lateruli here? <laughs> I don't even know how to say his name right. I still don't know if I'm saying it right because he said it one time. <laughs> and and he goes, who's asking? I go, uh, Funzie from the waterfront. I'm pointing to nobody. I'm pointing to nobody behind <laughs> me. And I look down at his hands because I'm just nervous. And he, he doesn't even look. He's looking at me, I guess. My head's down. And I see his hands like open the gate. This, you know, this metallic gate or whatever it is. And he, he goes, come on in. I'm like, okay. I'm like, am I in trouble? Did I get, he goes, well, if I was, I was like, if I was in trouble, why would he let me in? So I'm like, I'm probably not in trouble. So he gets in the radio and he goes, wait here. I'm like within two minutes, this nice lady comes down. She's holding the clipboard, dark hair. And she goes, Hey, you know, hi, sweetie, come with me. So we start walking up the, the ramp to go into Shea stadium. I'm like, I'm in the stadium now. So she looks at me, she goes, are you hungry? I said, sure. And she goes to the concession stand. She gets me a hot dog. And a soda and, and popcorn. No way. And she says, um, you want a program? And I'm like, sure, I'll, of course, yeah. And she goes over and she gets me a program. So now I have a program, got my food, start walking across the concourse. Now I can see the field through the through the tunnel. And we're walking down the tunnel. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So we're walking now behind home plate. Start walking down further and further. We get to the front row with the load seats right behind, right behind home plate. And she pulls a, a seat down. And she says, have a great time. And I'm like, what? and she leaves. And I'm sitting there with my food, my program. And within a half an hour, the Mets come out. They get their World Series rings. I can see the diamonds. I'm that close. I could see like the, the, the reflection off the diamonds <laughs> of the sun. They raise the World Series banner. My favorite player, Daryl Strawberry, hits a three-run homer in the first inning. They beat the Pirates three to two. And I'm like the happiest kid in the world. So I take the train to the bus on my way home. I'm looking for Funzy because I want to say thank you. He's not there. I get home. So now it's 5.30 at night. And this is the beauty of like life before <laughs> cell phones and the internet. My parents had no idea what was going on. And they were cooking dinner. And, and I get inside and, and they're like, tell us what happened. So I sit down. I start telling the whole story. And my mom's mouth is wide open. And my dad's mouth is wide open. And my brother's like, you got to be kidding. I tell them about Vito and Funzie and the program and the food, the <laughs> home run and the, the rings. And my dad, you know, he, he says, what were these guys' names? And I said, Vito and Funzi. And he's, he's like, where were they from? I'm like the waterfront, which I didn't know what the waterfront meant when I'm, when I'm 15 years old. And, and at that moment, you know, and like, I, I'm like, wait a second, I gotta go tell Scott what happened. So I get up before my dad could ask me a question. I run Scott's house 
to tell him what happened. I'm showing him the program and he's screaming at his mother because he didn't get to go. He missed out on everything. Oh my God. So I go running home across two lawns and I go into the house and I can hear my parents whispering. They didn't hear me come in. And I, so I leaned up against the wall in the living room. They were in the kitchen and I hear him. That's why I figure out what happened. I learned that my dad said he has no idea that the mafia got him into that game. <laughs> and so, so for 10 years, I told that story and everybody always wanted to hear that story. No matter where I went, people were like, tell the, tell the funsy story. So I, t- but I never, re- I tell that story for this reason. It's not for the entertainment value, even though it's there. Um, Funzy did something that most people don't do. I knew him for 10 minutes of my entire life. He asked three questions. He only told me about himself in terms of his name, but nothing else. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't ask me to do anything. He didn't ask for money. He didn't say, hey, I do this for you. You do this back for me. Mm-hmm. He just was curious, asked questions, and gave and connected together. And he made a dream of mine come true. And he doesn't even know that it happened. He doesn't even know that it happened. So my obligation in life is to tell the stories about those people and tell his story because he might've died the next year. He might've died five years later. He might be alive now, but as long as you keep telling that story, they live on and their legacy lives on. Mm -hmm. And he taught me more about connection than I learned in high school and in college. And it happened in 10 minutes on a day when I was cutting school. So, um, yeah, so that's that's one of the that's one of the stories. Yeah, that, I'm getting chills. My my wife is a huge Mets fan. We saw the last game at Chase Stadium. Oh wow! Um, and um, she, I, I can't wait to tell her this story. She's gonna go crazy. <laughs> but that's how people are, man. Like that are great at it. Like I just can't imagine like how many times that person didn't know you from Adam, didn't know like, but just thought, you know, this is something I can do. Um, this is like, I asked a couple questions and, you know, I know what this like person's trying to do. And there's like, he doesn't even know like what he's walking. He's just walking into a mile of problems that he doesn't even know. I'm going to do something like, I'm going to like, maybe like help save it, save him, um, from impending doom just off of a couple questions, like you said. And so like, you know, you connect with people again, when, you know, again, it's not like a win. It's not a give to get, it's just a general give to give scenario. And, um, you know, and, and then, yeah, like, you know, like understanding like more about the person, you know, themselves, you know, just think about how we we measure it so often. Oh, what's the ROI in doing that? What's the return? What am I going to get? Nothing. Right. Right. You think about him, and what he did, which was he got nothing from that, at least we would think. And we would think, oh, we get nothing from that either because we make this connection. Nothing happens for us. or they don't do it back for us or whatever ego things that get in our way. But what do you want at the end of it? You know what I want at the end of it? I want to if, if I'm gone 30 years and somebody's still telling a story about me yeah, as yeah. a general, like they say, a person never truly dies until people stop saying their name. And that's a really interesting way of thinking of it. Well, it's my obligation. He's, he's not dying, even if he did, because he was an older guy. So there's a chance, right? But as long as I tell that story, and as long as I tell the stories about my dad, the people in my life, the people who've helped me, we're keeping them alive. We're keeping their legacy alive. And I don't know about you, but 
there's a, there's a, we all like to get paid, but sometimes, you know, as Fred Klein said, I wrote about the book, psychic compensation is sometimes better or almost always better than, than monetary compensation. Interesting. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, maybe, you know, if I could uh, find that worker and his name uh, again, uh, for like, how did you pronounce it? What was the name of the ticket worker? Oh, Vito. Those Vito Laterulli and, and <laughs> I, I only know Fundy's first name. Oh, I've, Fundy, trust me. Yeah. I've looked up both of them. <laughs> Video better. Yeah. For, for years, I've looked them up on the internet. There's, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I have not been I able bet. to put, have not you been able to put know. the idea. You never know before you take your last breath. You never know whose family could, could hear, could hear that and be like, I know them. It's a, That's it's true. a small world. Well, so we learned a lot about connection. Um, you know, what are like, just uh, like, like somebody that you like would 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 maybe sitting at home and maybe they're like, you know what, this is all great. I'm just like, I'm not innately that person, you know, mm-hmm. who like has an uh, awesome story like that, that maybe, you know. Um, you don't need it. They just can come story. a Yeah, you don't need that story. So tell like, what would you tell like and, and coach people? And I'm sure you do. So talk about what you do on a day to day and your business now for entrepreneurs. How do you coach people that feel like maybe they just, haven't really figured out the, the the upper echelons of connection. Cause like, maybe we all feel like some of the stuff, you know, people think are basic, you know, connecting mm-hmm. with others, like, okay, we can, we can tell stories or we can, but this guy was doing something that seems so basic and simple, but it's not yeah. because he was probably doing it in dozens of, it was just probably who he was, you know, yeah. and, and he, you know, you know it, he didn't, he didn't, like you said, get anything back from it, it was that psychic. I love that psychic, uh, compensation. compensation. Yeah. Um, yep. that's a great mindset, a way to live it. So what would you, what, uh, kind of advice do you have for those, those people that just think they're not at the like highest levels of doing you, this? And that's the whole thing. People stop. You don't have to be mm-hmm. the whole thing is the whole world is focused on their goals. If you want to succeed, focus on other people's goals. That's the whole thing. You, I can tell you all you want about what I want to do. Right. But if you're so wrapped up in your own world, doesn't matter, right? I'm just, I'm just spitting in the wind. But if instead of me focusing on, hey, what do I want to achieve? If my whole thing is, what are my friends' goals? How, how can I, A, help them achieve those goals, but also how can I create something to help them achieve those goals? So there's a lot of ways of looking at it. Like you can say, oh, I'm going to make a connection just like Funzie did. Connect the unconnected. That's what I say all the time. I know somebody over here and I know somebody over here and they don't know each other. And the only way they're going to meet is because I make an effort to do that. I try to do it every day. So what happens is they connect, they do good stuff together. They both elevate and get better. It takes me a couple of minutes and my network gets stronger because as they make each other better, they rise up. Guess who else rises up? I do. Right. Mm-hmm. So I do there's two things. I'll say I have a thing called the hour of giving because everybody's focused on these journals. Like what are your goals and what are you going to achieve? And everybody's tired of it because it's all so self-involved. At least a lot of people are tired of it. But I said, okay, one hour a day, nothing about me. Hopefully it's the first hour of the day. And it is connecting people together. It's reaching out to people unexpectedly, not asked for anything. It's leaving reviews for products and books and podcasts that I listen to where I read. It's doing all the things that I'd want for myself for other people first. And anybody can do that. And you could do that in 15 minutes if you don't have an hour. Anybody could do it. But I can tell you the relationships that you will start to develop because of the trust built and the appreciation from doing that because nobody does it. Nobody does it because we're all focused on our own stuff. And when people do reach out, 
It's like, hey, Alex, how you been? Blah, blah, blah. Hey, I was wondering if you could uh, watch my dog next weekend. Or, hey, I, nice, you know, I want to reach back and touch. Hey, uh, and then, then there's the ask. And it's like, we're so used to being sold to, and we're so tired of being sold to, that we have this, just this innate, like, pushback. But when you can reach out with no expectations and thinking something might happen in a year or something good might happen between us in two years, there's no pressure of doing, you're not trying to sell anybody. You're just trying to connect. So, you know, even in terms of what I do now, I run a mastermind, a community for entrepreneurs. It's a membership community where we do two mastermind calls a week and we connect. We have these hour of giving challenges within it. We do content within there. We bring people together to elevate them, to coach them, to teach them, and to allow them to elevate their lives, but you elevate it along others. So I get to create something that helps other people, but it also financially is is good for us. So it's a win-win-win. How are you create? How do you create generous goals? That's a generous goal. This is not, hey, let me create something that's ripping people off. I want to create something that is more value to you than you're spending. Mm-hmm. So when you can do that entrepreneurially, you're always going to do well because people are going to talk about it. They're going to be appreciative of it. You're going to make money. They're going to get more value than the money costs them. And they connect with others and they learn and grow together. And that's kind of the transition that it's been for me. Yeah. Wow. And generous goals. And then uh, the hour given that is such good stuff. Like, yeah, people don't do it. Um, if you're, I'm, I'm sure like as an entrepreneur, if you're an entrepreneur, you've been on LinkedIn, the first reach out by people and, you know, listen, sometimes I'm guilty of it. I'll reach out to people. And after a couple of different things connecting, sometimes I, I may do it like there's an ask or something like that. So like, mm-hmm. you That's know, it's, it's so hard. Yeah. It's so hard to sometimes know for people when to make the ask, you know, um, like how, how much, um, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, theories around that. Um, but I think if your mindset too, is just like, you know, ways that you can connect people, how, how, you know, not asking how you can be helpful, just, you know, complimenting them on something Mm -hmm. you saw, just genuinely like, you know, mentioning something that was helpful, something that you like leave a review, like you said about something that they did. Um, You know, I know know we have 150 reviews on the, the new book, which is pretty cool. And not that I keep score at all. I pay attention to, I can tell you, if you ask me, did this person leave review? I, I would probably know if they, because you, because authors pay attention to that stuff. Some mm-hmm. of you do, right? If I post something on LinkedIn and you comment on it, or you comment multiple times a week on different, I'm going to remember you as opposed to the person that doesn't. So if Alex comments on three of my LinkedIn posts a week for three months, say you wanted to mm-hmm. connect to me and you did mm-hmm. that three times a week for, and then you reached out to me and said, hey, you know, great to connect, blah, blah, blah. And then a month later, you said, you know, I want to ask you this. Could is this possible? I'm going to tell you the likelihood of somebody saying yes yeah, yeah, is up totally. here, where the reach, the cold reach out, right? So, 100%. but we don't think long term. We don't think how do we develop these relationships? And maybe there's going to be a time. Maybe there won't. Maybe there. Yeah. But who knows? But you don't even know when they're going to connect you to somebody else. That will yeah. be a benefit. It's just yeah. always thinking in terms of the long game, in terms of something might happen, but I want to develop connection first. Yeah. Connection first is so key. People want it like um, immediate gratification, immediate. They even like just, I I mean, there's so much garbage uh, being spewed at me daily from, Mm -hmm. and they think they're, they're maybe nice people. They're, they're doing it in, in good intent with good intentions. And I get where they're coming from. Like, Hey, if I have a product that can help you, I want to tell you about it. And I had this conversation on LinkedIn with people where I'm like, 
I get where you're coming from, but I don't trust you yet. That's what you're missing. I don't mm-hmm. trust you yet. And I think a lot of people that, because the first part of my book is about character. It's character, curiosity, connection, collaboration, creation. If you don't pass the character test, if I don't trust you yet, I don't care how good it is. You want to know why? Because not only is it a cold reach out, but it's also not coming with recommendation from friends, right? But if it came with three recommendations, like this guy is awesome, and then he reached out, well, now I have the trust of the friends that 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 yeah, later. Totally. But but to do it without any of that, yeah, you're gonna get some people to sell because people are desperate to buy and they're looking for a quick solution. But you're not gonna get people with integrity and character to buy that often with that. And those are gonna be the quality people that you want to buy. They're gonna spread the word later. So people are doing it wrong over and over again. As yeah. opposed to doing it the right way. I know. And I have people that have reached out to me seven or eight times before I even said anything to them, just kind of bombarding you with like, yep. you know, put throwing it in your face. And uh, I don't I like, I just don't even know what to say to that. Like, just, well, I, I know, just reread I make, what you're writing to me, you know, like we don't know each other. Like, well, I make it very clear. I never, I never buy this way. I, I just, cause I also, if you're reaching out to me, like, I feel I have the, the, um, the ability to say to you what I feel because you're reaching out to me in this. It's not me reaching out to you saying, Hey, you're doing this wrong. You're trying to sell me. So I feel like I can say something to you. Like I don't buy this way. You will never get me to sell with a, you will never get me to buy with a cold pitch. And so, but they will tell me all the reasons. And I love the conversations back and forth. Like, well, you don't think it's this or you don't know. I just don't know you and I don't trust you. So I'm not buying yet. But a year from now, if you keep in touch with me, are they really going to do that? Probably not not worth it to them but to me those that's a parameter you know to set because yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna hire people that are recommended referred and people that i know like and trust yeah well and and there's so much content about you uh, existing so they could you know maybe do a little bit of di- due diligence yeah. and digging like a little to, bit. to yes. mention that <laughs> well i so enjoyed talking to you thank you for that story um you know so generous with that uh i'm sure you have so many others um, I usually end off with a fun question about you that uh, you've already done something, you know, set a fun story, but because I think we all have these unique things that are just so totally define us. So mm-hmm. uh, my question to define you, uh, Vincent, you know, if if I if I talk to your wife, your kids, and I ask them, what is just something, maybe an event, um, something that happened to you, where they something that you do, maybe it's a quirk that is just that is something that could only or would only happen to you, something that is just so totally, Vin, uh, I don't know if I can call you Vinny or Vincent, Whatever, but yeah, so, well. so, so, <laughs> something that is so totally you, what uh, would that be? You have a few minutes? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, my wife would probably tell this story. Um, when I was starting my photography career, I was lost. So I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any, um, there's two that I could tell, but I'll tell this one. Um, so I was basically in New York City going around to different stadiums. I'd buy the cheapest ticket, Shea Stadium, Yankee Stadium, and I would sneak to the front row to, to get better pictures. And I'd talk to the photographers and I'd try to learn what kind of film and cameras they use. Like, that was my school. I did this five nights a week. And finally, one day I was like, you know what? I need to get out of New York. And I didn't have very much money, but I bought a plane ticket because I had a credit. I think we were going to go somewhere. It got canceled. My parents gave me the credit. I think I didn't have any money, but I bought a ticket, a round trip ticket to Chicago. 
and I rented a car and I stayed in youth hostels and I drove two weeks around the Midwest, which I'd never been to before, just to go to different stadiums to shoot in different stadiums. Cause that was like, not even realizing what careers were out there. I'm like, Oh my God, if I could take picture in Bush stadium or, you know, Wrigley field, like that's the level, that was the height of what I thought my career could be. So that's going to be the two week trip. So I drove around, I went to eight or nine different stadiums. I went as North of Chicago, where I started down to Memphis over to St. Louis, back up to Milwaukee. I woke up in Milwaukee on the last night in a barn, like no joke in the second floor of a barn sleeping on hay. Cause it was $8 at night. And that's what I could afford. And I had two options. I could go to Chicago and Elton John was playing in a concert. I love Elton John. I'm like, and, but in green Bay up North, the Packers were playing. It was a preseason game. And I'm like, you know, I'd seen Elton John, but I'd never been to Lambeau field. That's like one of the most historic stadiums in the, in the world. Um, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Lambeau and try to get in somehow. So I drove up to Lambeau field and I got there at noon for an eight o'clock kickoff thinking, you know, coming from New York preseason game, no, nobody cares about. Well, people care about preseason games in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And it was sold out. Not only was it sold out, but everybody was tailgating already eight hours before the game. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So there's no tickets. I go to the box office and I got, so I was like, oh, I'm not getting in. So I went, I walked to a movie theater. I watched the Apollo 13. So it was when Apollo 13 came out, watched the movie. I went back to Lambeau. I'm like, I'm going to get a ticket. It's about six o'clock at night now. And I go to the box office, still no tickets. And there's this old guy that he saw me. He goes, are you looking for a ticket? I said, yeah, I can't get one. He goes, well, it looks like it's going to rain. My wife doesn't want to go. I'll sell you her ticket. So he sells me a ticket for $20 to the game. So I rush into the stadium because I don't want to miss it. Cause I, I usually shoot pregame. I'll get, that's when I can get close to the stadium without, you know, having to sneak down. So I'm in the front row shooting the kickoffs was shooting all the, all the pregame stuff, the kickoffs and everything. And a guy walks by and he's on the field and he looks up at me and he says, hey, are you taking pictures? And I said, so my camera, I said, I said, yeah, I'm taking pictures from the crowd. He goes, Hey, can you help me out? And I said, however, what do you need? And he said, my assistant didn't show up tonight. So I need an assistant for the game. I work for NFL films, NFL films, like my dream job. So he works for NFL films, has an extra press pass. And he sees me with a camera and invites me onto the field. The funny thing is, it was a guy next to me taking pictures, and he happened to lean over to change his film when Jim, his name's Jim Jordan, came over, leaned over, changed his film while he was kneeling down. Jim saw me, asked me, and next thing I know, I'm getting onto the field of Lambeau Field, and I hear his kid screaming at his dad saying, you shouldn't have been changing your film. This guy just got on the field. So he's yelling about it. So I'm now on the field of my dream job. Like, this is the career that I want. Mm-hmm. And I go over. So he goes, you can do whatever you want tonight. He goes, your NFL film. This is what Jim said. All I need you to do is change my film once a quarter. Basically, take the film, spray it with air, give it back to me. That's all I have to do. But otherwise, I can take all the pictures I want. So I go into the Packers huddle. This is 1995, so it's Brett Favre's first MVP season. It wasn't even MVP yet. And he, Brett Favre looks at me because I have a baseball cap on backwards. With the t- I, don't, I'm not, I don't like him with the press because I wasn't dressed to be with the press. Hat on backwards, T-shirt on. And he looks at me and he just like shakes his head like, it was so funny because he knew I didn't belong there. And I have a picture of him shaking his head. I saw the picture of him looking at me with a smirk on his face. I'm in the huddle. So the game starts. And, and all of a sudden, the speed of pro football is way different than the speed of like high school football, which I'd shot before. And, I, and there's a running play. And I think it's a running play. And then I look to my right. And I see an eight and a two. 
right in my face. It's Michael Westbrook from the Redskins running straight towards me who had caught a pass on a passing play, not a running play. And he bowled me over, knocked me over, flipped me upside down, faced first into the dirt. And I took my first NFL hit and I survived it. So halfway through the second quarter, second or third quarter, I'm in the, I'm underneath the goalpost. This moment changed my career. I'm under the goalpost and I look to my left and I see Jim Jordan in the corner of the end zone. And he waves me over like frantically. I thought I did something wrong. So I run over and I say, I say, what happened? And he goes, no, no, kneel down right here. So I kneel down, Brett Favre rolls out, throw a, throws a pass to Dorsey Levins, catches a touchdown right in front of me. And I get this picture of him hugging Mark Tremur from the Packers. And they're going, and it's the best picture I've ever shot in my career up until that point. And never had access, professional players. And Jim walks away from me and I see him and he looks back at me and he kind of winks and turns around. And I go, what just happened? So I go running over to him and I said, what happened? And he takes his headset off and he goes, well, I've got Brett Favre mic'd for NFL films. I knew where the play was going to go. And I wanted to put you in spot to get a good picture. And awesome. he walks away and I'll never forget. I turned because I'm underneath the goalpost. I turned towards the field, the Lambeau field, the you know, vertical shot of it. I see the whole stadium. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, this is what I want to do with my life. So at the end of the game, I said to Jim, I said, I'm going to go to the locker room. I was totally joking. And he goes, you're NFL films. You can do whatever you want. And I was like, so I go into the locker room and I'm in with my baseball cap on and I'm shooting pictures of Mike Holmgren, the coach. And he's like, and, and, and all of a sudden, so I'm, I'm like, this is like my dream. I'm, I'm going to get everything I can out of this because I'll never do this again. And the PR guy comes up to me from the package. He goes, who are you with? I said NFL films. He snapped the press pass off my neck. He goes, wait right here. Like I did something wrong. I'm waiting and I'm thinking, even if he took my press pass, I don't care. I did, I, I did this. I don't even need it anymore. And he comes back and he says, you're good. And he doesn't give me the pass back. In all the years of shooting, it's the only press pass I've never gotten. Not, I, don't, I still don't have. Well, as soon as that was over, I left. And literally the locker room from the Packers back then before the renovation led right into the parking lot. And I walked out of the locker room into the parking lot of everybody tailgating. And I said to myself, I'm tired of being on the outside looking in. I'm tired of being in the parking lot. I want to be in the field. And I went home and I told my parents that this is what I'm doing for a living. And that's how my sports photography career started. That, that is so freaking good. I love it. Um, one of the best stories of Selling Human, uh, like so many that you gave. Um, I know we're, we're kind of coming to the end, man. Vinny, where can people connect with you, find you, like just learn more about you and some of these stories like after this? Because... You know, it's just not enough on this yeah. podcast. Thank you. Uh, uh, the website's called totallifefreedom.com. Um, I had a, a podcast that ran for almost three years. It was a daily podcast. I've taken a pause from it for now just to kind of collect. So a lot of these stories and lessons are in there. It's a daily show. So there's 1,100 episodes. So people could check that out. Um, the book, The Wealth of Connections there. If there's an entrepreneur that's looking for a community to help them grow, the Total Life Freedom Mastermind community, check it out. It's all part of the website. Um, we have some giveaways there too, if anybody wants. So that's probably the best best place to find me. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on. I've so enjoyed talking to you today, man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, gang. All right. Wow. You made it to the end. I know your time is valuable. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending your time here with me. If you heard a quote you liked, got a quick bit of value, or you have an idea that can help convince others to join, I urge you to take a minute and leave a five-star rating and review. 
that helps us gain influence and bring some really great guests on to add even more value to you and others. You can also always contact me directly to tell me your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. All my info is in the notes. Let's help convince anyone that they have the ability to sell well just by being great humans. And this podcast is proof. All right, see you on the next episode of Stories of Selling Human.